start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. The RHS-endorsed range of top-quality joinery includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, stores and more for people who want to make the best of their outdoor space. The products are made in our Essex workshop from responsibly sourced timber, and with each order, we plant a new tree. Get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order. She very famously said that one of her pastimes was ungardening because she really liked to allow nature to take its own path and the plants to do their own thing. And I think her having a garden where she ungardened was something where she could have control by not having control. That's Emma House, a curator at the Garden Museum in London. She's talking about British artist and gardener Jean Cook. I wanted to start today's show off with the idea of ungardening. In this case, Emma's talking about ungardening as a form of freedom, as a way of spurning the conventional formal ideas of what a garden should be to make way for a wilder, unrestrained space. And what we mean by ungardening isn't the antithesis of gardening itself. Instead, it's about taking a new perspective on what tending the earth can look like. It's about putting away ideas of should and must and it's always been and welcoming the new and sometimes even the bizarre. And that's a fitting theme for today's show. It's chock full of stories that force us to look at things with fresh eyes. First up, we're getting handy in some slightly unusual tips from RHS advisors on June Grow Your Own Problems. Then we'll head to Wisley's Orchard to hear the latest on our brand new fast growing habitats. And finally, we're returning to Emma House at the Garden Museum She'll be chatting with us about how artist Jean Cook explored this concept of ungardening through her paintings. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. Let's get right into it, shall we? And check in with the advisory team at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello, my name's James Lawrence, Principal Horticulture Advisor based at Wisley. And today I'm joined by fellow horticulture advisors, Becky Mealy. Hiya. And Adrian Thorne. Hello. And today uh, I'd like to discuss with you some typical grow your own based questions that we get from our members. So let's start if we can with tomatoes. They're always a popular group of plants that we're asked questions about. So obviously if people have started growing tomatoes, they might have grown them from seed earlier in the year in a protected environment, or they might have bought larger plants from the garden centre or nursery a bit later. But there's certain things we get asked at this time of year in terms of general care of them. But but first, Adrian, can you help here? What's the difference between bush and cordon tomatoes? Well, 
Cordon tomatoes are a much taller, vigorous plant. They grow to maybe six to eight feet tall if allowed. You'll grow those up a cane or up a twine. They're very useful for getting a lot of tomatoes into a small space because it's all going vertical. The bush varieties are much smaller and generally wider. They're often really good for pots or grow bags, or if you just have a smaller garden, a smaller space to grow in. The bush ones tend to be slightly earlier to uh, fruit as well. Thanks. And Becky, I think it's fair to say that perhaps the cordons need a little bit more maintenance or looking after. Can you give us a few tips on how to keep them productive? Yeah, so cordons, it's all about supporting the actual weight of the trusses and the vine as it goes up. So I tend to wind mine up a string where the leaves come out. It's a bit like they get a little growth out of their armpits and you have to pick that bit out. Uh, So that's a side shoot. If they get too big, it can get a bit too congested in there and get too much strong growth in there. So it's easier to pinch them out while, you know, while they're little and small and you don't have to get the secateurs involved. Yeah, absolutely. And removing some of those side shoots is going to help with the health as well, isn't it? Because I think it's been proven that if you increase the sort of airflow around the plants, you're perhaps less likely to sort of suffer from some fungal problems and a few other things. But also it's diverting the energy into fruit formation as well, isn't it? That's the other thing. And then the other trick that I do is I I put a sacrificial banana into the greenhouse to help the ripening. So if everything's all a bit green and you're thinking, why are my tomatoes not changing? You put the banana in there and the ethanol gas gets released. That's a great little tip for, for getting those late ones to ripen in particular. Okay, so let's move on to potatoes now. We regularly get asked questions about potatoes. And Adrian, what's the key things for looking after your potatoes? Earthing up is very important. So potatoes can be slightly vulnerable to frost damage. They can also, if the the tuber, the potato itself, the part we eat, if that gets exposed to light, it turns green and becomes inedible. So you go through this little procedure called earthing up where you drag and draw soil up around the shoot of the plant. So when it's got to about 20 centimetres, nine inches, you start to pull the soil up around it in a little sort of mound and leave the top 10 centimetres of the plant showing. And you keep doing that throughout the growing season so that's really important they are quite reasonably thirsty because you're putting a lot of water into those potatoes so you do have to keep them well watered throughout the growing season especially during dry patches like we might be having at the moment so currently hopefully people have noticed their potatoes either even start to flower or in full flower and this is a sign to show you that they are really nearly ready to harvest so you, you usually say when the potatoes have started to senesce you start to get a little bit of yellowing of the actual plant and then that's to show you that it's ready and those potatoes are perfect for picking there are guides to how long on average certain types can be left but i always feel that the potato tells you bear in mind when you actually planted them so you know roughly when you're going to harvest oh and also depending on what type of soil you've got so if you've got a heavy clay soil you might not want to leave them in the soil for too long because the slugs can help themselves and make nice holes in your potatoes so it very much again depends on the soil you've got and the potato you've got and kind of what little friends you've got in the soil Great, thank you. 
Right, let's move on. Probably one of our most popular kind of crops, I think lots of people try, are strawberries. Growing strawberries, lots of people like to try them. Hopefully fairly easy and straightforward, which is probably why they're so popular. Uh, and very briefly, there's different types, of course. Most people are talking about growing what we call the summer fruiting types, which are the ones that will hold the sort of larger, juicier fruits. But you can also get perpetual strawberries, which tend to be slightly smaller, but they have fruit over a longer period than the summer fruiting ones. And also alpine strawberries, which are a smaller plant altogether and very small fruits, but can be quite ornamental. But from a cropping point of view, most people would go with the summer fruiting types. So firstly, you can obviously buy them as young plants, but how else might you get hold of strawberries, perhaps in a more economical way, Becky? Well, actually, mine are from our Jenny. So Jenny potted up some of her runners and has given me them. And now I have two patches of strawberries that I've got for my own runners. The old name was Strawberry because of how they would grow. But yeah, they send out these runners just a bit after they've kind of fruited and they actually do layer themselves into the ground around. So you do have to watch out for them making a bit of a, a jungle around themselves. But if you're clever, you could get one of those runners pop it into a pot nearby it, pin it in, and then it will actually root itself into that pot for you. Now, I've found over the last few years that controlling those runners early on, so when the fruits are just starting, can actually help produce a, a larger yield. And then you get to a point later in the summer where you then just let the runners go, and then you've got your propagation material. So, yeah, using the runners, it really is a plant that, that you should try to propagate from if they don't do it themselves because also each individual plant is really only mostly productive for about three or four years and then you should really be using new plants anyway. It's just a really nice time of year for enjoying your garden, isn't it? And picking out and going, oh, look, everything that's on my plate, I grew. It's great. Talking of which, any particular successes or indeed failures in your own... So mine's my courgettes. So last year I had a really bad year with the courgettes, but this year I used some root grow on them. So when I sowed the courgette seed, I put a pinch of root grow in the hole with the seed. So that's a mycorrhizal. The mycorrhizal, yeah. And it's amazing the actual root formation of these courgettes. I mean, normally they're tiny at this stage, but they were like busting out of the pot and really wanting to get into the ground. And even actually now, they're just really growing. I've had several courgettes already, absolutely gorgeous, really nice and sweet. I'm like, right, I'm doing this again. It didn't work so well for the tomato. So obviously the mycorrhizae in that packet of root grow is different for tomatoes, but I know you can get a special one for tomatoes. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, next year I might do one for the tomatoes. But yeah, it's definitely worked for the courgette. Give it a try. For me, for some reason, I'm not sure what I've done differently, but it's my red currants. My red currants are absolutely bursting with fruit. It's the most I've ever seen. So, of course, I'll put it down to something that I've done. Yeah. And, and just, uh, <laughs> but I wonder if it's the cold, because we've had maybe. a, like, we've had a yeah. lot of things, yeah. that, like the fatinia flowered really well yeah, this year. Right. And I reckon it's the cold. I think yeah, things, some, yeah, sometimes the cold really can bring on extra flowering and then fruiting, can't it? So... I shall make the most of it while I can. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, won't, I won't talk to you about my carrots because that's a different story. Oh. <laughs> okay, 
So thanks both for joining me today. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Thanks to Becky, James and Adrian. One of my allotment successes this year has been onions and garlic. I planted them in the autumn and I think they really enjoyed the wet, mild April that we had. Globe artichokes have been brilliant as well. I think they liked the heat last summer and they're enjoying the heat at the moment. They got covered in black fly a week or so ago, but held my nerve, didn't spray anything. And this week I've had this army of little ladybird larvae come and they've, they've literally cleared it. It's been really good. It's not all successes though. I had one failure, which has been asparagus. Life lesson, definitely learned it thoroughly. Weed your asparagus, it really doesn't like competition. I had some nigella, some love in a mist on the plot and it self-seeded all through the asparagus plot. And I thought, oh, won't that be lovely? But it's really kind of taken over the asparagus bed. It's harbored a few slugs at its base. So the new asparagus shoots have been munched a bit. So yeah, I've made a resolution to always weed my asparagus patch quite thoroughly after that. As the advisors touched on, summer's the time when we can sit back and really enjoy our gardens. It's when things are often looking and smelling their best. One of my favourite parts of summer are the trees. I love the way that the strong overhead light at this time of year plays through the canopies of leaves now that they've fully unfurled. And so for our next feature, we decided to take a trip to the place with the highest concentration of trees at Wisley, the orchard. And right now we're in the process of revamping this 70 year old orchard and replacing many of the trees with what we're calling fast growing habitats. Last week, we took a walk through these habitats with Neil Williams from the edibles team to get an update on how the orchard is progressing. The orchard was planted in, in 1950-51 on a commercial basis with tractor rows for spraying pesticides, herbicides, fungicides and fertilisers and we really don't want to, to produce that way anymore. Because we're no longer spraying we're, we're suffering from quite a few insect pressures and we want to combat those in the most natural way possible by increasing the orchard's biodiversity. So to do that we're increasing habitat mainly so we're planting various things to improve the habitats, such as uh, what we're standing in front of now, which is, we're calling it fast-growing habitat. We've planted 25 species of mostly native trees, quite densely, about one or two per square metre. And we've laid down a cardboard mulch, and I'd recommend that around fruit trees generally, if you lay it down in the spring, and then put whatever you've got on top. So we've got five centimetres of garden compost. So that's going to feed the soil microbes, improve the biology, keep the moisture in, and to an extent hold back the weeds. The cardboard won't last long. Within three or six months, it, it won't be doing much, but it will have stopped that initial flush of grass. And then the wood chip on top will add some more weed suppression. It'll hold more moisture in and it'll make it difficult for those seeds that are blown in on the wind to establish. So we're looking at 25 different species uh, laid out in a kind of organic shape about the size of a couple of tennis courts with a meandering path through the middle and there's a social space in the centre which will eventually, when it grows up, we'll put log seating in and I think it'll be a nice, nice retreat from the the midday sun. The 
Trees are particularly suitable to encourage birds, so lots of trees with berries, hawthorns, blackthorns, rowan and crab apples, wild plum, wild cherry. Because they've been planted quite densely, they'll compete with each other for light as they grow up and we'll try and look after them quite well for a couple of years, we'll weed them and water them and then once they're competing with each other we should be able to sort of stand back and let them get on with it and the idea is that they'll we'll establish a, a sort of dense woodland habitat here in the orchard much more quickly than we would using conventional methods. And with forestry methods you'd normally thin the trees out over time to allow them to become very large. Well we, we don't want individual trees to become particularly large, we just want to create that dense thicket. So to create this fast-growing habitat, we've borrowed some of the principles from a system known as the Miyawaki method. Now, there was a Japanese botanist, Akira Miyawaki, who developed this over his life, and it's a system of creating mini forests, typically in urban areas, and often local councils and community groups will come together and develop these sites. They can be as small as 10 by 10 metres, with the Miyawaki process, the idea is that you first dig the soil down to a metre in depth and incorporate organic matter. So we weren't going to do that here. We're too keen on, on no-dig gardening and we felt that that wasn't appropriate in the orchard. We didn't want to destroy the soil structure, perhaps in an urban area where you've got more problems with concrete and hard core and bricks, it's more appropriate. So we're not using that aspect, we're using the mulches instead but we are planting densely, we're planting with the same sort of 25 plus species and we're looking after the area in terms of watering and weeding for two or three years until things have established well. We planted this area in March. They were fairly small, 40 to 50 centimetres when we planted them and they've made some progress. They're kind of up to about a, a metre high in places. We haven't had any rain here at Wisley for pretty much a month now, but because of the mulching, the soil, if you put your hand under the compost, it's still fairly damp, so they're, they're doing really well. Whilst we're planting lots of new trees now, we'll be saving quite a few of the old ones. It's really useful for an orchard to have trees of different ages. Apple trees in particular develop what we call veteran features very early in life. Similar to human terms, within sort of 50 to 70 years, you've got lots of cavities and places for insects and wildlife. So it's very important to keep these and also to keep some standing deadwood as well, which hosts another section of organisms. Well, obviously not everyone can build a, an orchard like this in their own garden, but I think there are quite a lot of things that we can take away from this. So whatever you can do to improve the diversity of species, then that's all going to help with your garden's ecology. So if you're thinking of putting in a hedgerow, I think if it works, if at all possible, put in a, a mixed native hedgerow with plenty of foraging opportunities for wildlife. And I'd really recommend that the public make more use of cardboard. We tend to all have quite a lot of waste cardboard and it's great for suppressing weeds and holding moisture in. Probably don't use too much and take the tape off first 
and then put on whatever you can, ideally composts, wood chip, or whatever else you've got available. Thanks, Neil. If you'd like to hear more about the Wisley Orchard, check out another story we did last autumn on the topic. The episode is from the 24th of November, and it's called Trees, What Are They Good For? I love the idea of orchard as ecosystems because, of course, to get a good crop, you have to depend on biodiversity. If you don't have the pollination, for example, you won't get a good crop. So having things like wildflowers and even bee hotels close to your fruit trees will very likely bring in things like red mason bees, which are brilliant native pollinators that will really help you get a good crop of apples. One thing that Sheila Das mentioned when we had her on the podcast last year when the Orchard Project started was growing things like comfrey and other deep-rooted plants that can mine nutrients from further down in the soil and bring them up. And then as their leaves decompose, they provide living mulches and they cycle those nutrients into the root sphere of the fruit trees. And I think this is a really beautiful way of making use of the goodness of the earth and not relying on external inputs such as artificial fertilisers. It's a really lovely way to reconfigure your orchard and also reconfigure the way that we grow our food. And now for our final story of the day, we're switching over to the aesthetic side of things. We're travelling to the Garden Museum to get the inside story on Jean Cook. Jean, who lived from 1927 to 2008, was a British painter fixated on her two bedraggled gardens. As her friend Leonie Graeff once said about her London plot, it's an artist's garden, full of grottos and arbours, a garden which does not suffer from any bourgeois principles of cutting and trimming. Quite a quote. And in fact, we have Jean to thank for the theme of today's episode. After all, it was her who coined the term ungardening, which she loved to list as a favourite hobby. So without further ado, here's Garden Museum curator Emma House to explore what exactly this means. I mean, when I look at Jean Cook's paintings, and they are so different from the garden that I have, they really excite me. They're really, really interesting because I feel like I'm going on a journey with her, a journey of her garden in Blackheath and what that meant to her. Because when she first moved to Blackheath, it wasn't necessarily a garden that was about plants and nature. So I think she went on this journey changing what the garden was. And through her paintings, you experience that. And again, at Berlin Gap, she sort of spent her time divided between London and Berlin Gap. The garden and the landscape of Berlin Gap is very, very different because it's this kind of austere coastline where things struggle to grow. It's sort of about plants championing against the conditions. So very, very different, two very different gardening experiences and both, I think, exciting for different reasons. So most of the paintings we have in the exhibition are quite large scale. They're sort of all above a metre, although she did paint lots of smaller works. And they're just really lush and vibrant. They've got beautiful colours to them. She often painted trees and blossom against the sky. So you've got these wonderful contrasting colours of the blue sky and then these kind of textures of plant material and bark and it's a different take on what a garden could be because it's more about kind of experiencing this closed off space that's kind of enclosed by overgrowing plant material. Jean was more interested in having a garden that kind of 
was more experienced through its wildness. She very famously said that one of her pastimes was ungardening because she really liked to allow nature to take its own path and the plants to do their own thing. I think that maybe the ungardening was a kind of reaction against some of the things in her life that she couldn't control. She was married to John Bratby and their relationship was quite difficult, quite turbulent at times. There are a number of portraits that she painted where she had a black eye, so there was some violence there. And I think for her having a garden where she ungardened was something where she could have control by not having control. You know, in her relationship, she had to paint at certain times. She had to look after the children. And having the garden meant that she could just enjoy those kind of seasons changing. She could enjoy the beauty of it. And I think for her, gardening was something that was maybe perhaps a therapy. We know now there's lots of research being done about gardening being something that's good for people struggling with mental health issues and things like that. But I think for her, gardening was somewhere that she could have some freedom to explore, letting it change from the garden that had been more about her husband and the family and becoming more of her space as a woman and as an artist and something that really sort of drove her art practice but also she loved nature and she later on in life owned doves and she adored them and they feature a lot in her paintings so I think this idea of wildlife was something that she just wanted to interact with and by having a less formal garden she was able to do that. She painted the garden almost up until her death so she'd returned to it repeatedly so I think you slowly develop a really really in-depth relationship with the garden by all of those sort of really in-depth studies through paint and through canvas. The magnolia tree in the garden is something that she paints repeatedly. It's in quite a lot of her works. And she loved buttercups. There are these wonderful paintings of really close-up studies of buttercups, but also when she was sort of painting more meadow canvases at Burling Gap, buttercups come into that. Nasturtiums feature quite a lot in her work as well, and those sort of wonderful unfolding tendrils as it sort of creeps along are something that's really beautiful in her work. But then also there's this really wonderful study of a single nasturtium flower held in the palm of a hand. And I think that's one of the paintings in the exhibition that I find most emotive because the garden is beautiful and lovely, but it's really this kind of very, very intense up-close study of a hand with a nasturtium in it that is just so personal. It's that kind of really, really personal, intimate relationship with just a single plant. 
I mean, I think Jean's paintings have really come into their own time now. I think perhaps when she was painting them, she was a little bit ahead of the game. But now there was a lot of discussion around biodiversity and gardening for wildlife and how by letting your garden have wild spaces, you can create a much wider diversity of animal life and plant life. So I think really the paintings are a massive inspiration for people that are perhaps interested in exploring biodiversity but not sure how they can build this into their relationship with their garden and I think Jean's paintings that span a really long period of time show that you can have this wonderful lifelong relationship with a garden that is wild and is more uncultivated but really gain a huge amount out of it. So I think it's sort of something quite exciting for the public to see. The Garden Museum's exhibit on Jean Cook, aptly called Ungardening, opened yesterday and will be running until the 10th of September. You can find details in our show notes. For me, Jean Cook's approach to gardening brings up many of the same ideas as rewilding, Rewilding is a form of ecological restoration, returning the land to nature, and it's a topic we've covered on the podcast before, and something we're going to touch on again soon. Wilding author Isabella Tree is coming back on the show to give us a practical guide to implementing this philosophy. As she explained, rewilding is about putting nature back in the driving seat. It's about allowing habitats to evolve, to shift and to change, and to find their own way. So it's, it's like an open-ended, ever-evolving approach, and to me it seems like exactly the kind of thing that Gene Cook would have jumped at. In some ways, it could be said to be the absolute epitome of what she termed ungardening. Well, that's all for now. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening. As we look to the year ahead, start planning your dream garden with the help of the Garden Trellis Company. For more than 30 years, we've been making beautifully crafted joinery for the garden. Our range of top quality products endorsed by the RHS includes trellis and slatted panels, fencing, gates, planters, sheds and stores, and all made in our workshop in Essex. Make the most of your outdoor space and get 15% off RHS-endorsed Prestige Joinery products at the Garden Trellis Company when you order online or by phone with code RHSPODCAST. Visit gardentrellis.co.uk to find out more and order.